It's found in Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Talking about the spirituality of surrender, as some of you know, I've been spending a great deal of my time doing something that's surprising uh, for a pastor to have to do this late in his ministry to learn about spirituality. Uh, you would think that that would be something that all of us would know by now, but it's not so. I don't remember having one class, maybe one would qualify, uh, when I was in graduate school on the subject of spirituality, but I think that was even a stretch for that one. <laughs> so it's something that it's kind of new, and I'm happy that the Lord is bringing more of this to us today. I have some important things to say. Spirituality cannot exist apart from living in an attitude of surrender. And I'm going to explore that with you today. Spirituality cannot exist apart from living in an attitude of surrender. We have to be in an attitude of surrender in order for spirituality to exist. Surrender is uh, going against the grain of our innate American ideals. <laughs> We're not very good at surrendering to anybody or anything. We are very much involved with autonomy and self-control. It's a part of our culture. The idea of surrendering is very foreign to us. Um, sin has elevated in America the value of self to a very, very high level. Autonomy. It's really anchored deep into our roots. It's so strange that this is only one of the things that are strange about this country of ours. It's a Christian country that prides itself in being founded on Christian principles, but is so deeply ingrained in establishing the value of self, which is very contrary 
to Christian values. But that's what happens in our country. Um, we have been involved all along in America for a headlong pursuit for personal liberties and freedoms and fiercely resisting anything that would even remotely resemble surrender. But surrender is at the heart of what spirituality is all about. It may be that our basic native, cultural, national values are somewhat inhibiting spirituality in America and maybe why we're not growing here spiritually as maybe other parts of the world are. Surrendering to anything or anyone seems to be um, making a person codependent or weak. And I want to suggest that these values have even come into the church. Um, in order to be spiritually vibrant and spiritually strong, we have to be people who have surrendered ourselves. We've just let go. We're not in control anymore. We have given it over to somebody else. We all know that. We all mouth that. We all preach that. But we all live something very different than that. And so we need to make some adjustment. To make ourselves uh, weak, to be surrendered, seems to be making us dependent or codependent. And that is not good, we feel. As a result of that, our pursuit of spirituality, and I say this speaking to myself, speaking to everybody, our pursuit of spirituality is largely in our own hands. It's something that we take it upon ourselves to do. And it's so interesting in conversations wherever I am at, in Seventh-day Adventist or non-Seventh-day Adventist Christian groups, wherever they might be at, even though we say we believe in righteousness by faith, it doesn't take too long in almost any discussions for words to come in that convey where we really believe our safety is at. It's in ourselves. And we want to be hard on people that do not perform at the level that they should be because they are weak. They should be stronger. And we come down very hard on them. I'm just making some observations from a man who's getting older. <clears throat> uh, do we choose personal freedom or do we choose bondage? Lucifer is my first example. It's a story that we all know about and is told in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 and onward. And it tells us about the way he chose to live his life. And I'll just review it very quickly to you. You could look there if you want, Isaiah 14, verses 12 and onward. He desired what place? The highest place. He's not surrendering. He's exalting. He wanted to be above the stars of God, to sit on the mount of the congregation. Is he surrendering or is he exalting? He's exalting. And he wanted to be like the Most High. That's as high as you can possibly get. Right? 
And the end result of self-ascendancy is he was brought down to hell. That's the result. Now I want you to compare what the Bible says and just said about Lucifer with what the Bible says about Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Where you find Jesus in that first encounter that he has with the devil in the Mount of Temptation and uh, in the wilderness. The temptation number one, Satan tempted Jesus to do what? To turn stones into bread. He tempted Jesus to do what? Now, I want you to think of that in terms of what I'm talking about today. Selfishness or self-sufficiency. What did he tempt Jesus to do? To trust in whom? To trust in himself. When we are raising our children, do we train them more to trust in themselves or to trust in God? Do we do this and how do we do this? Do we do it in words and do we do it in example? And when we send our children away to school, what responsibility those teachers feel to have to hold very tightly to those reins of control and, and, and anchor in so solid in the minds of those children that they need to perform. The message is really clear. It's self. It's no different than what Jesus was all about. It's the devil came, first temptation, trust in yourself. Trust in yourself. The devil, I think, is the one behind this whole movement trying to get us to do that. The second temptation of Jesus. Satan was tempted uh, to force God to come to his rescue, taken up to the pinnacle of the temple, jump off, the angels of God will, you know, take care of you. He was forced, he was actually being urged to force God to take care of him, to go out on presumption. Jesus would have nothing of it, making God subservient to him. He would not have nothing to do with it. The third temptation had to do with uh, the devil taking him to a, a high place and showing him all the kingdoms of this world and all the, the treasures of this world and said, if you will just bow down to worship me, I will give all of this to you. Who was talking to him? The prince of this world probably could do what he offered. All right. And uh, Jesus said, get away from me. He would have nothing to do with this. He's only going to worship God. And you find at the very beginning these two things really clear. Satan is all about self. He's all about taking care of self. He's all about the big me. And Jesus would have nothing to do with that at all. He would make himself totally dependent upon the Father. Now, one of the things that we have to remember about that is we're talking about Jesus. He could easily do all of those things without Satan's help at all. <laughs> he could accomplish all of that. But he came to model for us the way that we can be made well and healed. And it comes only one way. Can you tell me what it is? Surrender. Surrender. Thank you. <laughs> Trusting in God. Letting go. Letting God come in and not trying to solve our spiritual problems with our own spirituality. Our strength cometh from God, not from within us. 
And we trip over that in absolutely so many, so many ways. Jesus intentionally chose the path of humility, surrender, and meekness. Now I'm going to add to this another character in the Bible because it perfectly illustrates what I'm trying to say very powerfully. You have the prince of the New Testament, so to speak, the Apostle Paul, who is responsible for most of the New Testament. He's a classic example. At one time, Paul was very consumed with himself. I have to say, there have been times in my life I've been very consumed with myself too. And I tell you, it brought me nothing but pain and all the people around me pain. And there was no spiritual growth at all during that time. It did not happen. Oh, I was studying the Bible. I was a preacher. I was bringing people to the Lord. Wonderful things were happening. But I was empty, empty, empty inside. Because God was not doing those things. It was me. Anyway, so here you got Saul who became Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and onward, If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, Paul said, I have more. So here was a man who excelled. He had very good credentials in self. Right? He had made a master of that self. He'd gone to school. He'd learned now to hone all of his skills so that maybe he didn't even think he needed God. He can do it all pretty much himself. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, Paul said, I am blameless. Let's do an attitude check on on Paul. What do you think? Is he self-surrendered? Or is he (laughs) self-exalted? He's exalted, isn't he? In Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, Beyond measure, I persecuted the church. I wasted it. I profited it. And uh, among many, over many of my equals, more exceedingly ze- uh, zealous than any of them. So he's really proud of what he is doing. In Acts chapter 26, he says, I became exceedingly mad against them. He's not humble. He's overbearing. I want you to take a look now in 1 Corinthians. Just open your Bibles and take a look there. Because there you find some passages that really get to the point of what Paul is trying to say. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can see that uh, in verse 27. This is Paul. And here is the man who had done so much and had excelled and he was so trained and he was so much into focusing inward. In verse 27, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. On that road to Damascus, Paul came face to face with God who knocked him off of his horse and knocked him off of his, his platform. And now he had to learn something all over. And this proud, 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 exceedingly proud Pharisee, he no longer looked for things within. He looked for all of his help from outside, from where cometh his help, you know. And so the things of this world are are foolishness and shame, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. This... Paul determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The second chapter, verses 2 and 
3. To be weak. To, uh, to the weak I became as a weak, that I might gain the weak. I made myself all things to all men, that I might save some of them. So he flipped completely over and changed. And now he says, I glory in my infirmities, lest I should be exalted above measure. I'm choosing to look at my infirmities and I glory in them. I told you recently, you know, and all of us are going through times that are difficult times. And my wife and I, in going through the things that we have had to go through recently, and we all go through those things, I am learning to look at the infirmities as blessings. You know what they do? They just kind of take my gaze away from my world and take me away from my belief that I could solve my problems. And they take my eyes and they move them steadily and steadily into the face of Jesus. And now I feel better. And more than that, I realize that Jesus suffered all of these things just like I did. And he came through very fine. You know? And it's good for me to suffer these kind of things. And I don't even get involved so much praying that the Lord take away all the troubles anymore. Because I think troubles sometimes are the way that actually I can get closer to God. Now that's kind of upside down, isn't it? Or is it right side up? At least that's what Paul said. God said to him when Paul was asking for one minor little self-correction and he wanted this thorn removed, God said to Paul, my grace is what? Sufficient. My strength is made perfect in in weakness. Brothers and sisters, the thing where God has taken me in my life, and I'm so glad that he's doing that, is to learn to treasure weakness, to value it, to cling to it. Because when I'm weak, I am the strongest. Surrendering ourselves is something that only we can do. It is surrendering ourselves to what Jesus likewise surrendered himself to. And as we do that, we become weaker and weaker and stronger and stronger. It just works that way. That's the way it works. I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, in necessities, Paul said, even in persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And I'm finally going there. Praise the Lord. My wife would say, praise the Lord, too. My children would say that as well. <laughs> Christianity puts surrender right at the core of spirituality. Anything other than surrender soon becomes something that you hate to hear. If we are not totally surrendered to God, immediately we slip into idolatry. Just immediately. Now let me explain what I'm talking about. There may be people that, and we may be performing quite well. We may be religious leaders, <laughs> you know. We may be doing a lot of wonderful things. We may be saying a lot of stuff for God. But if surrender is not there, and surrender simply means that you no longer are in charge, you have become humble, you don't speak unless God speaks through you, that kind of thing. You know, if that doesn't happen, idolatry is in our life. Whenever self is on the throne, we are idolaters. And so even though we may be doing all kinds of wonderful things for the Lord, idolatry is still there. 
Not all obedience comes from surrender. Adventists and Pharisees and others, Muslims as well, people all around the world have become very expert in obeying. They just gird themselves up, rigid up their back, and they just do it. And oftentimes those people, listen to this, are elevated in the church because of why? Tell me why. Because of what they do on their own. But inside they are hollow. And you can always tell when a person is hollow because there's just simply nothing in there. There's just, there, there's Christ isn't in there. So it's really something that's sad that that's happening. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and done all these wonderful things, etc., etc.? And then Jesus said, I never knew you. I never knew you. That's pretty sad. Jesus doesn't want mere compliance. He wants the heart. He must have the heart. And Christian obedience must be based upon the surrender to a person, not upon our ability to obey laws. I want to say that one more time because it really needs to sink in. Too often in Christianity, no matter what church it may be, we are obedient to the rules, the rules of the club. But we know not the Savior who is the head of the club. He's not living inside of us. Now, if Jesus is inside of us, what is the first evidence that he is there? You want to tell me? How can you tell if someone is doing it on their own or if it's coming from Jesus inside them? How can you tell if it's genuine? All right, let's hear it. Ah, I like that. The one that was the closest to Jesus, John, the beloved disciple, he understood that. And he said, the greatest evidence that you are a Christian is if you have the ability to do what? Love one another. Satan does not know how to love. Only God knows how to love. And so if you find individuals, listen to this. If you find individuals in the church, including pastors, who have the ability to do a lot of things, how do you know whether or not it's coming from them or if it's coming from the Lord? How do you know if the Lord's in the throne of their heart or not? Find out what kind of lovers they are. Now what do I mean by lovers? These are individuals. Lovers do not have walls. The Bible says, that same apostle, Apostle John, he said, uh, love casts out fear. If you do not have love in your heart, it's very likely you've got fear in your heart to wall you up and keep you closed down. And you don't want to be transparent. You don't want to be porous because you don't want people to look inside. You may be ashamed of what's inside yourself. You want to stay closed. And you run your whole life pretty much closed. From the time I was a young boy, I grew up with fear. And I learned very quickly that I had to kind of close myself off and be very careful in monitoring what went out. I was not porous. I'm much more porous today. People can see right through me. 
But in those days, I was very guarded. I, I, I guarded the shell. I guarded what they saw. I guarded everything I do. And I got called into ministry because I was good at doing that. And there are a lot of Seventh-day Adventist pastors, pastors from a lot of churches that are that way. And you get close to them and you do not know what's in their heart. They won't show you. Is it possible if you have love in your heart to lock it up? Is that possible? No, it comes out. You can tell. The Apostle John said that. It comes straight out. And so the way you can tell whether a person really has themselves on the throne of their heart or whether or not Jesus is on the throne of their heart is not by all their behavior, by all the do's and the rules and all that kind of stuff. You look close at them and you find out, do you find someone inside, a warm, loving human being? Do you find someone that is more concerned and compassionate understanding about you than they are concerned about themselves? Do you find that there? Do you find someone on the inside who is very quick to tell you things that you should do rather than really just loving you? What do you think the first thing that the Father is going to do when we meet Him in the kingdom? Do you think He's been waiting all of these years to give us a laundry list of all of our faults when we get to heaven? You know, the... (laughs) The Gospel of Luke tells us really clearly the way that Jesus told us how the father is. The story of the prodigal son's father. That prodigal son did terrible, terrible things. But every day, irregardless of the fact that that prodigal destroyed the family, wrecked their finances, broke the father's heart, did terrible, terrible, heinous things with his own life, brought shame upon them all, the father every day went out and looked and waited for that son to return. That's the way the father in heaven is. That's why Jesus told that story. And when finally broken down and totally beaten up by life, that prodigal finally does come and the father sees him a long ways off. And his heart is now overflowing with joy. His son is coming home. There is not a thought in that father's mind about all the lectures that he needs to give that son, is there? If Jesus is in the heart of someone, you will see love. And if he's not, you're probably going to see a lot of correction taking place. Oh my goodness, that's a challenge to us as parents, isn't it? That in all cases we have to love our children. That's a challenge to church boards in the way we deal with the erring. It's a challenge to teachers wherever they're at. It's a challenge to Christians that people need, if there's love there in the heart, then there's going to be love towards other people. And that's the test for Christianity. Not how smart we are, not how many things we know, it's whether or not Jesus is on board. And if Jesus is on board inside the heart, There's going to be that kind of love. Surrender is how we get that kind of love. When we finally surrender to Jesus Christ, (laughs) tell you something, a story. This is a true story. It happened to me, so I'm a pretty good authority on this one. During those years of being walled up with fear 
closed down. I was hard to live with. I made a lot of rules and a lot of regulations and a lot of demands. And the biggest victim was my wife. She was always there. She was very faithful. And she just wanted to do her best job. Unfortunately, she came from a family and a mother who also loaded her down, pounded her down with all kinds of rules. And it came about midway in our marriage that one day my wife was just overflooded with rules and regulations. And she went into the bathroom and was crying and weeping. And she wanted to end her life. I was terrified. I heard her cries. I heard her agony. And the door was locked. And she could have easily done it. I know she was feeling that bad. I thought, I have killed my wife. How could I have possibly done that? And I went back. And in that moment of thinking that I was going to lose my wife... The Lord brought back to my mind who this woman was. All through those years when other people would move away from me and forsake me, she was there. She always was there. And I was so hard on her. But she was always there. And I'll be on that door. She may be taking her life. And I, was, I couldn't do anything about it. I was scared to death that I would lose her that day. Oh, it brings a lot of emotions just to remember that event. Happily, she didn't do that. But I want to tell you something. My heart broke that day. And the thing that happened to me, I want to explain this really clearly because I don't think what we're try I'm trying to say here comes across easily. There's a lot of barriers to hear what I'm trying to say. What happened that day was so amazing. A lifetime of the way I treated this woman and abused her and hurt her stopped right then and there. I died to self. No longer was self on the throne, which means I didn't consult myself. I didn't think about myself. I was concerned about her. And I would spend the next several years with nothing in my heart at all except to know and understand and love this woman who I had been married to for quite a while but didn't know at all. She had lived with a man who had been trying to perform, to put on an act, to try to be obedient and do the right thing. And it was killing her and killing the kids. That day, what I want you to hear is this. When I saw the effect that what I did, I didn't need to work to become a good person after that. It didn't come by all kinds of hard effort. I was changed. God changed me in a moment, making me into a different person. And I was now the kind of a father and a husband that I needed to be. It changed my life in a lot of ways. I want to tell you, who did it? Who made me obedient? Not my effort. It came instantaneously. It was a gift. And so the issue of obedience can only be valid 
We can only obey if we have surrendered and God has come into our life and has changed us. So all of this preaching and all of this teaching and all of this stuff that we do all the time, wanting to try to communicate what is right to other people, I had heard that all of my life. I couldn't do it until I personally surrendered to God. And then I didn't really have to learn it. It was there. Salvation is a gift from God. He comes in fully. He abides in our heart. And what comes out is not our own. It's His. But over a period of time, it does become ours as well. And that's what it's all about. So surrendering, rather than this huge psychological and sociological and cultural idea of strengthening ourselves and pushing so many demands upon ourselves and demands upon others that ends up closing us down and killing ourselves in the process is not the answer. God can, in a moment, change everything. And He does. And I'm here to tell you that I'm happier. (laughs) I'm just a whole lot happier when God does His work within us. So, that's what I wanted you to think about. I want you to think about doing this. Maybe instead of reading your Bible all the time, maybe you ought to stop and try to get acquainted with the God who wrote the Bible. Now, if the Bible can help you to do that, fine. But so often we just plow through those texts to learn things, messages, teachings, whatever it may be, and we never know the author of the book. Love is something that Jesus alone can give us. And if we surrender to Him, even if it's looking at a text and just meditating upon it, going out and taking a walk and thinking about Him, you ask people in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and the Christian world today what they think about whatever it may be, whatever truth, whatever message, whatever lesson, they'll have a lot to say. And then you can ask them, do you know Jesus personally? And they just kind of just stop. That's where it's at. We've got to have an experience surrendering, letting go and letting God come in and live. And the changes that can happen in a moment far outshine what I could do or you can do in a lifetime of just with our own effort. And God is fully capable of doing that. So would you join me in putting more of your time and more of your effort in trying to know Jesus. Not just filling your head with knowledge, do's and don'ts, but to know Jesus, to let him come in. Maybe you will find him by walking with him through some kind of a crisis like I did with my wife. And instantly he'll change you. Maybe it's in the moment of prayer in the middle of the night sometime and suddenly he will change you whatever it may be. Get to know Jesus. Give your heart to Him and our lives will be vastly, vastly different. I kind of went off script, didn't I? (laughs) Just like what I was talking about, right? And we have to trust the Holy Spirit much more than we do. God can in a moment do what it takes us a lifetime to never even come close to. 
Well, thank you very much for sharing that time with me, and I pray that it will be a blessing to you as you think about it and as you ask God into your heart. And now may the Lord of grace enter our hearts every moment of every day as we surrender ourselves to him in the morning and noon and night and all through the day. Before we open up our mouths and speak, we surrender our, our words to him so that he can either stop them and make us listen instead of speaking or whatever just to hear him and follow his lead rather than our own. Help us to be more quiet and more reflective. Help us to think more about him and open up our hearts for his love to come inside and change us realizing that more good can be done with love than with any kind of teaching and sermon anybody can preach. And so, Lord, bless this people, each and every one of them that have come today. Inhabit their hearts as they open their hearts to you. Help them to go through the struggles in life that will cause them to open their hearts, to break from their trust in self, so that your will and your person can be inside of them, not by work of their own, but by simply allowing you to have full control. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.